Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Boulder Dash. Now, what does Boulder Dash have in common with Choplifter and Pitfall? You'll discover the answer to this question by the end of this episode. But before we get started talking about this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Sprite Castle. It has been a busy month here at the castle. Uh, my dad, uh, Flax Sr., has been in the hospital, and so I appreciate everyone's well wishes. He is doing better, uh, but he is still there, and so I have been dividing my time between work and the hospital and haven't had as much time uh, to do daily chores here around the castle. So you'll have to forgive the mess, uh, on this month's episode. I also, uh, since I had no free time at all, I decided this would be a great time to open my own discord server to the public. Now I've had a discord for a while. I just haven't really announced it. I've been moving things around and, uh, I've got it set up. If you want to come hang and have some fun and talk about games and talk about movies and entertainment and just, just chalk, talk, hang out, have a good time. Uh, I have an invite set up at robohara.com forward slash discord. That's all lowercase D I S C O R D. I am uh, sharing links to all of my podcasts and a few extra things there. Of course, if you want to get all the extra, uh, information about my shows, that's on Patreon, but uh, Discord is a good place to get information. So if you are a Discord user and you want to come see what all the fuss is about. Now, this is not discussing or uh, replacing, excuse me, the uh, Discord on the uh, Amigos retro gaming Discord server, which is a benefit that only Patreon supporters get, which has a huge uh, community, lots of great information, and uh, is a little bit different. But if you want to just dip your toe and see what Discord's all about, you could go to robohara.com forward slash Discord. That will get you started. I spent some time over the past couple of weeks playing games on real hardware. I've been moving things around in my home office. I'm always moving things around in my home office, and I took some of that time to take advantage of playing games on my real Commodore 64. You know, there are so many solutions. We've talked about all the different ways there are to play Commodore games, whether it's pure emulation or pure metal or somewhere in between with the uh, BMC 64 or the C64 Mini or Maxi or the Mister or anything. Uh, so there are many steps in between point A and point Z, and I think they all have advantages. They all have uh, things that make them unique and good solutions, so I don't poo-poo. <laughs> I do, but I don't poo-poo those solutions. Um, but uh, there is something, I don't know, there's something magical about sitting down on a real Commodore 64, putting a real floppy disk in, even though I didn't do that. I didn't put a real floppy disk in. I've got my 1541 Ultimate, but loading a game up and playing it and just letting the, the sound come out of my CRT monitor and um, just had a good time doing that. Just kind of takes you back to the old days, simplifies things a little bit. So I enjoyed uh, doing that a little bit last week. While I was busy uh, playing games. I saw a bunch of people standing in line uh, coming in to the castle, and those were this episode's Kings of the Castle. Several of you successfully identified the song from the last episode as Proud Mary, a.k.a. Rollin' on the River, what some people call it. Uh, some 
said that it was the Tina Turner version, which I believe it was a port of the Tina Turner uh, version. But uh, I am a big fan of the CCR, Creed's Clearwater Revival version. But uh, either one, I was pretty lenient last month. So congratulations to all of the last episode's kings of the castle. That included Mitsuyama, Joe Sharippa, Steve Sharippa, Commodore Chronicles, Aardvark, Pajako6502, CBM Nut, welcome to the party, Bill Spear, Edward Smith, Event to the Jam, Tad M, and Dan Creek. Uh, everyone who came was allowed into the King of the Castle, the VIP room, last month found those giant inflatable balls that look like giant life-size Marble Madness balls, and they have been duking it out on our life-size maze out here behind the castle. It's gotten a little rough. Uh, at least I don't want to call anybody out, but a couple of people got sick, uh, while, while playing around on those big and giant inflatable things. But, uh, overall I think everybody had a good time. So congratulations to all of last episode's Kings at the castle. If you would like to become a King of the castle, all you have to do is listen for the eight bit song played at the end of this episode. It will be related to this game, but not from the game itself. And if you can send me an email that tells me the name of the song and its relation to this game's title, uh, you may find yourself with a key delivered to your email box, which will allow you access to the King of the Castle VIP room. If you know that song and recognize it, you can email that to me at robohara at robohara.com and be sure to put King of the Castle in the title of your email. And that way, Gmail will not uh, filter your email out into its ever growing spam folder. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, congratulations again to all of last episode Kings of the Castle. We've got a little bit of Commodore news. Uh, there is a new 40 years of the Commodore 64 bundle available on itch.io. Uh, I believe the minimum payment for this bundle is $10, which is a heck of a deal considering all the games that are in this bundle. It includes Tombstones, uh, Showdown, which is a game that I have played on my stream, Exploding Fish, which I played on my stream. It's a fantastic game. Uh, Bruce Lee Return of Fury is in there. Uh, Man Cave, Ice Cold Beer, Flangry Bird, lots and lots of games. Rogue 64, uh, which I think was $5 when it came out. So $10 for this bundle is uh, a heck of a deal. So if you want to go play some of the great games that have been released for the Commodore 64 over the past year or two, uh, you can go to itch.io and just search for the 30, or no, I'm sorry, the 40, the 40, oh my gosh, the 40 years of Commodore 64 bundle. Can you believe that? 40 years? It's amazing. Um, it looks like the bundle has 26 items in all. So for $10, that is a good bargain. Uh, I got several new Commodore 64 games this month. Uh, I played Mike Mech, which is a platform game. I would say the gameplay is similar to Minor uh, 49er, where you have to work your way through different platform levels, and you have to cover every area with your feet, so you have to change the color of the platforms you're walking on by. Uh, but also... You can also hit it with your head, so there are platforms above you, so the mechanic is different, but uh, I would say the gameplay style is probably similar to that, but uh, modern graphics, it's a great-looking game. That is called Mike Mech. Uh, I also played Party Speedway, which is a uh, a racing game. If you like bare graphics, this is a game for you. <laughs> you have a racetrack, there's an oval racetrack, and I think the car's uh, are basically just tiny little dots that race around the speedway, but it is a lot of fun and multiplayer supported. So if you like fast action racing games, go check out party speedway. Uh, I played uh, shallow domains, which is a turn-based strategy game. I have not got very far in that game 
Yet, uh, I need to go back through the instructions. I, th- I skim the instructions and uh, then didn't get very far, which is kind of my MO when it comes to strategy games. But if you like turn-based strategy games, uh, Shallow Domains looks great, and you'll probably want to check that out. Uh, I also tried uh, Jungle Joe, which is uh, described as a platform puzzle adventure game. Uh, it looks uh, absolutely fantastic. I had some fun. I only got through the first couple of levels uh, just checking that out, but that looks really good too. So Jungle Joe is another uh, new game that came out over the past month. I also saw what is being dubbed the 40th anniversary of The Cursed of Robinstein or Rabenstein. I don't know. R-A-B-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Now, I have... Uh, I know I reviewed that game. I'm not sure if I streamed it, but it was a text adventure, a graphical text adventure that I played on the Commodore 64, and this updated what is uh, being referred to as the 40th anniversary is an updated point-and-click edition of the game. So if you don't like traditional text parsers uh, when it comes to gaming, then you might want to check out this 40th anniversary of the curse of Robinstein uh, and check out the new point and click interface that has been added. I did check out Robin Harbin's latest eight uh, bit show and tell video. This video, it's not even fair to say the video is amazing. Robin Harbin is amazing. Uh, in this video, Robin Harbin basically takes a look at the code of Double Dragon for the Commodore 64. Now, Double Dragon is a infamous game on the Commodore 64. It is infamous because it has a very, very strange graphical glitch uh, that uh, causes a blank row of pixels to appear between the top half and the bottom half of the character. So every character looks like their torso is floating in midair above their legs. It's a very, very strange thing. And from a non-technical standpoint, you know, even if they are two sets of sprites that have been combined, uh, it seems like if you moved one of them down or one of them up, you could solve that problem. So I've never truly understood what the problem was. And uh, one of the reasons why this is so famous in Commodore 64 lore is because it is actually mentioned in the instruction manual of the game. The programmers apologize <laughs> uh, for leaving this in and basically say, you know, with their, the time schedule they had to work with and the amount of graphics and the limitations of the Commodore 64, this is the best they could do. And we're hoping it doesn't affect <laughs> Um, your enjoyment of the game. So um, a lot of people know about that glitch. Um, Not a lot of people know the technical reason why it is there. And so on the latest 8-Bit Show and Tell, Robin goes into the code and figures out why it's there. He even tries to fix it. And there's some interesting results. Um, He does the best that he can, but you'll have to take a look at that video and see whether he is able to completely solve this strange graphical glitch that has been in uh, Double Dragon for, which is probably more famous than the Commodore version of Double Dragon. More people know about the glitch than uh, the actual game itself. But if you want to see Robin uh, try his hand at fixing uh, the graphical glitch in Double Dragon, then check out the latest episode of 8-Bit Show and Tell. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hare at RobOHare.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. Or I guess I should throw in, you could come hang out on my Discord, which is uh, RobOHare.com forward slash Discord. I'll have to add that to my copy. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. My patrons this week got a Rando Rob video of the latest hat 
that I have added to my hat collection. And that video was filmed while I was driving, which is the very first time I have done that on Rando Rob. That was a, a fun little adventure. And those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paper boy who just ran into the Grim Reaper. Hey, I know that, dude. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. As I always say, there are three categories of games. There are games that feature food. There are games that remind me of a specific food that I ate uh, when I played this game. And then there are games that have nothing to do with food. And Boulder Dash uh, falls into that third category. I don't have any food associated with Boulder Dash. There is no food in Boulder Dash. But I will tell you this. The boulders in Boulder Dash look a lot like meatballs. And so <laughs> I know this might sound like kind of a stretch, but uh, as I mentioned before, my dad is currently in the hospital. So every day after work, I have been driving from home to the hospital, uh, which is about 20 minutes away, spending time there and driving home. And in between my house and the hospital is a firehouse subs. Now, um, there's an interesting story about firehouse subs. It's not really that interesting, but I will tell it to you very quickly. Uh, is that I used to travel a lot for work. I've probably been to half of the states in the country. Well, I've been to all 50 states, but I've been to half of them through work trips. And I never like eating at national chains when I go on trips. I will do it. And actually, my exception to that rule is breakfast. Uh, I am a, a big fan of McDonald's sausage burritos. <laughs> I like getting those or an Egg McMuffin. And that's just kind of a comfort food. Uh, I don't need to be adventurous to start my day off. <laughs> I like something that I know. I like a coffee with some cream and sugar in it, and I like one of those items for McDonald's. So I'm okay with that. Uh, but for lunch and for dinner, I like to go to places that I don't have here where I live. And so I was on a trip many years ago, and I saw this place called Firehouse Subs, and it was a sub sandwich place that I believed was owned by local firemen or supported local fire department, something like that. And I went there, and it was really good. Uh, and this has happened to me a couple of times before. Uh, embarrassingly, one time this happened uh, at Texas, what's it called? Texas Roadhouse? I believe the steakhouse I went, I was in Texas with a coworker and we went to Texas roadhouse and told the waitress, I said, you know, if you're in Texas, you got to go to a Texas, a local Texas place. And she said, yeah, we're based out of Indiana. <laughs> I think that's what she said. <laughs> and so anyway, when I went to this firehouse subs, uh, I was convinced that I was in a, I want to say maybe I was in Atlanta. It feels like I might've been in Atlanta. I don't know. Um, but it turns out that it was a national chain. I just had never heard of it before. And a few years later, we got one right here in Oklahoma City, right down the street from my house. So anyway, uh, one of the evenings where I was coming back from the hospital last week, I did stop at Firehouse Subs, and I got the Firehouse Meatball Sub, um, which I thought about later. It's just called the Firehouse Meatball, and I thought, that almost sounds like an insult. <laughs> Like the one guy that, you know, you're yelling at, you're like, come on, you firehouse meatball. <laughs> I don't know why that sounds like an insult. It sounds like a, um, like a seventies, like a Laverne and Shirley era insult. Hey, you meatball. Um, anyway, the firehouse meatball sub, I don't know where I'm going with this has, uh, meatballs, provolone, marinara sauce, and Italian seasoning. It was quite good. You can also ask for it with sweet and spicy. And they will add uh, Captain Sorensen dadle peppers and hot sauce and red pepper flakes. And that's what I did. And uh, I didn't order it intentionally, but as I was looking at it, I thought, you know what? This kind of does remind me of uh, Boulder Dash. They do look like the little boulders. So speaking of little boulders, 
Boulder Dash was published for the Commodore 64 in 1984 by First Star Software. It is a game for one to two players that uses joystick controls. First Star Software is an interesting little company. They were founded in 1982 by Fernando Herrera. Uh, They were based in New York. They published and developed games from 1982 to 1985, at which point they switched their focus and began uh, only developing games and licensing them. Uh, so they stopped publishing other uh, publishing in-house games. Uh, so basically, they, they switched to developing their own games in 1985 forward. Some of the first star software games you may have heard of include Spy vs. Spy, uh, Superman the Game and Superman Man of Steel. Those were all first-star software games. Uh, Fernando Herrera actually programmed several of the company's early games, including Time Bomb, Space Chase, My First Alphabet, and Bristles. Uh, he also did Superman the Game and Rockford, the arcade game, which we will be talking about later in the show. Uh, I don't believe we have covered any of those games on Sprite Castle to date. Now, this game, Boulder Dash, has a bit of, I won't say controversial, but a little bit uh, complicated history that I was not aware of. The game on Moby Games is credited as developed by Peter Lipa, and that is L-I-E-P-A, but I have listened to some interviews with him, and, and it's pronounced Lipa. Peter Lipa and Christopher Gray, uh, they were both from the Toronto area. So let's start with Christopher Gray's story. Christopher Gray had an Atari home computer. I believe he said he had an Atari 400. Uh, And he had this idea for a game. Now, he wrote this game in BASIC. It was based on the arcade game The Pit. In an interview, he said that he called it Pitfall. Uh, This would have been before the Pitfall that we all know from Activision. And he started showing this game to different developers or... um, not not developers, but um, publishing houses. And one of the companies he showed his game to was called In-Home Software. Now, at that same time, Peter Lipa was programming uh, on his Atari 800 home computer, and he wanted to develop games, but he didn't have a good idea for a game. So he also contacted in-home software and said, I am a computer programmer. I would like to develop games. Can you tell me what type of games are selling and what you're looking for? And so in-home software put Christopher Gray in contact with Peter Lipa. On one side, you've got Christopher Gray, who had come up with this concept of a game. And on the other side, you had Peter Lipa, who is a computer uh, programmer and a developer who's looking for a game to make. So the two of them combined forces and the end result, and this is where things get a little murky, was Boulder Dash. So uh, the the game Boulder Dash, uh, it is credited, it says created by Peter Lipa and Christopher Gray and programmed by Peter Lipa. Now, <laughs> again, this, this gets a little murky. Um, uh, one of the things that says, uh, well, I found this quote on electrondance.com that says, quote, the game that emerged from this curious process was Boulder Dash. While the title screen bears the credit by Peter Lipa with Chris Gray, it is essentially Lipa's game with only a passing resemblance to the original prototype. Nonetheless, without the seed of Gray's contribution, Lipa would never have made this particular game at all. Now, I have listened to interviews uh, with both men, uh, Antic, the Atari 8-Bit podcast, which you should be subscribed to and listening to, did an interview with Peter Lipa, uh, and he basically gives his version of the story, which is he got the game from Christopher Gray, and that 
it was written in basic, so it didn't run very fast. Uh, so they, he ended up porting it, uh, to assembly, I believe. Um, he said that the game was too limited because Christopher Gray's original game all fit on one screen and the graphics were very small. So he made the graphics much larger. And then when he made the graphics larger, he came up with the idea that the game should scroll. And so he came up with the idea of the game scrolling around. So most of what we think of when we think about the game, Boulder dash came from Peter Lipa. Now, Peter was only interested in programming on the Atari computer. And he is listed on his credits on Moby games for programming Boulder dash, Boulder Dash 2, and Super Boulder Dash. That's it. <laughs> um, he was not interested in continuing on to develop for other systems. Uh, that's, that's basically the games that he worked on. Now, in that interview, he says that he and Christopher Gray were, quote, on totally different wavelengths. He also says we eventually, quote, went our separate ways. Uh, and this led to an intellectual property dispute. This is because um, Christopher Gray, and I've heard Christopher Gray's side of the story on an interview he did with Lost Treasures of Gaming. Uh, so let's talk about Christopher Gray for just a moment. He is listed on Moby Games as programming Whirly Nerd, Boulder Dash 3, Techno Cop, Dirt Harry, um, Captain Planet and the Planeteers and, uh, Bob. So he's programmed several games that were successful games. Uh, he is also credited as the designer on all Boulder Dash games. He is the designer of Infiltrator one and two and the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, uh, and James Bond Jr. So he remained in the game industry for a much longer time than Peter did. So basically, what we have here is two people, and I believe both of them are correct from their point of view, that think or that feel that they were the person who came up with Boulder Dash. Christopher Gray came up with this idea, uh, and without Christopher Gray's input, there never would have been a Boulder Dash. That's true. But Peter Lipa is the person who took that little nugget and turned what Christopher had done into the game that we now know as Boulder Dash. So uh, I give them both props. They both seem like very nice guys. And without both of them combining uh, forces, we would never have this great game called Boulder Dash. The object of Boulder Dash is to move through mazes and collect enough diamonds to reveal the exit so that you can exit the level and move to the next level. Uh, it first appeared on Atari 8-bit computers and was quickly ported to many other computers, including the Commodore 64. When we take a look at the box, we can see the title Boulder Dash, which is in large rainbow-colored letters. We have the star of our game whose name is Rockford, and Rockford is holding a diamond. Now, Rockford has been uh, interpreted in many different ways, both digitally and in the artwork that accompanies these games. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, he Rockford is holding a diamond, and around him in this artwork, we can see lots of diamonds and rocks. Now, on the Commodore 64 version, it says, by Peter Lipa on the front of the box, and we have the logo for First Star Software, along with Microfun, who is a distributor for First Star Software. The back of the box has lots of information about the game. It says, it isn't easy to find butterflies in an underground cage, let alone transform them into precious stones. But with your help, Rockford can do it. I should say that it says Rockford TM. <laughs> so Rockford's name is a trademark. The real problem is how do you get him out of there alive? As boulders crash down all around him, Rockford, TM, digs frantically through 16 magical caves and five levels of difficulty. But he needs skillful guidance to drop boulders through an enchanted wall, block the amoeba 
turn butterflies into gems. If you think you can do it, you've got rocks in your head. After every four caves, there's a playable intermission. In his restless quest for gleaming jewels, Rockford works around walls of rock and avoids swirling fireflies. To win, he must turn his enemies into opportunities. If he collects his required number of diamonds, the mysterious escape tunnel is revealed. And again, like most games of the time, we've got a few screenshots of the game in action to show us what things are going to look like. The menu screen is interesting. You have uh, scrolling tiles in the background. We have the title Boulder Dash inside a border. We have uh, credits, and we have a few options here for starting a one-player game versus a two-player game. We can also control what level uh, or cave we start on and a difficulty level. So we have a few different options uh, before starting the game. Uh, we also have uh, this picture of Rockford. Now, uh, in the game, <laughs> Rockford looks like uh, a humanoid body with a kind of an ant's head. It looks like a round head with antenna on top of his head. On the game box, he looks like a blonde-haired boy. Uh, in other games, he looks like a spaceman. In some uh, artwork later, he has red hair. In the Game Boy version, he looks like a miner. Uh, not not M-I-N-O-R, but M-I-N-E-R, like with a mining helmet with black hair. Uh, some of the games have him with a helmet. Some have him with no helmet. Uh, some of them show him as a young, like a 10-year-old boy. In the version with the minor, he's a grown man, and sometimes he's a weird thing with an insect head. So Rockford <laughs> has gone through many, many different iterations uh, through all the different versions of Boulder Dash. So again, uh, at the menu screen, we select what cave and what difficulty, uh, what number of players, one or two players, and then we go into the game. Now, uh, once we go into the game screen, well, I should say that uh, the controls are pretty simple. You use joystick controls. You move in all four directions on the joystick. There is no diagonal movement. You can hold down your button and push the button in a or push the joystick in a direction with the button down, and it is like you've moved in that direction, but you don't move. Um, it's not very useful. I don't think that I hardly ever use that, but uh, that option is there. Uh, now, in the game, you have a timer that is counting down, and you can pause the game if you need to look and study the board. You can pause the game with the space bar. You can also hit the run stop key on the Commodore 64 and basically end your life, uh, but not exit the game. You can through, actually, it's not that difficult <laughs> to trap Rockford in a situation where he can no longer move. And your only option at that point is to press run stop and end Rockford's uh, life and then start back over. Um, or wait until the time runs out, <laughs> uh, which is not very much fun. So the object of the game, again, is to work through uh, each level, which is full of dirt, and Rockford can dig through dirt. Uh, you have to collect enough diamonds to escape and then exit the level before time runs out. Now, each level has different items. In the earliest levels, there are uh, three, I suppose, items, if you count the dirt. Uh, the entire field is essentially dirt. Um, and then there are boulders, and then there are diamonds. Uh, so that's what we begin with. Now, as you move forward through the game, you will start to find enemies. And there are uh, two, actually, there are three enemies. The first one are fireflies, uh, and you will see them and they fireflies move in a, I have to think about this clockwise, uh, movement and they always stick to the outside wall. So they're very predictable, uh, in where they go. If you drop a boulder on a firefly, it will explode in a three by three grid that can be used in later levels to knock out portions of uh, brick walls, which Rockford cannot go through. But through the explosion, you can open up 
other levels uh, or other portions of the levels. Now, there are butterflies, and butterflies move uh, counterclockwise along the uh, outer wall. So it gets a little confusing when you have butterflies and fireflies on the same level. Uh, they can also, you can drop boulders on them, but they turn into jewels uh, when they are smashed. So uh, some levels you'll need to do that in order to get enough jewels to be able to uh, reveal where the exit is. Some levels also feature an amoeba. Now the amoeba starts off small, but begins to grow. And you can contain the amoeba by surrounding him with boulders. Uh, and if you do that, if you completely surround the amoeba with boulders, he turns into diamonds. So that is a uh, very good way to build your score up. Or uh, the amoeba, if you leave him alone, will eventually grow to tie up 200 tiles, at which point all 200 tiles will turn into boulders, which can make completing levels a little bit difficult. Now, with all this talk about boulders, um, if you can imagine Dig Dug for a moment, uh, we all know how the rocks work in Dig Dug, uh, not the dirt that you go through, but you, the rocks that you can drop. So all you have to do is um, clear a path underneath a rock and then move and the rock will fall down uh, into the tunnel that you have just created. Now, the boulders in Boulder Dash work similarly, but uh, there's a lot of talk about the boulders physics. So if there are two boulders sitting on top of one another in the dirt and you dig out all the dirt on the left-hand side of those two boulders, the top boulder will fall off. It will fall to the left of that area that you have just created. So there is a, a physics to the boulders. Uh, it's very simple, but when boulders are stacked up, if you clear whatever's next to the boulders, they will roll off and then fall down. So uh, you have to be careful as you're moving through the dirt because it's very easy to be not paying attention and go past boulders and free one up and it will roll over and smash Rockford's head in. Um, <laughs> but you can also use this to your advantage as I mentioned with those enemies like the fireflies and the butterflies uh, and even the amoeba uh, that you... Uh, can set up uh, traps. You can set up a path, get them to follow that path, and then move out of the way and drop uh, boulders on those creatures. Uh, now, boulders can also be pushed. So if you have an area where an opening, like a clear path, you can push uh, a boulder left and right, uh, but you cannot push two boulders when they are together. So if you get two boulders that are stuck together, unless you dig underneath one of them or something, uh, essentially you have locked these boulders together. And that is another uh, way that Rockford can create situations where a level can become unwinnable. If you push a couple of rocks together in an area where you can't dig underneath one and you block an exit to a room or something, then all you can do is hit run stop uh, and start over. Now, the manual comes with a large strategy guide that talks about all the different uh, caves that are available. So each one has names like Cave A. It says Intro, Pick Up Jewels and Exit Before Time is Up. Well, that's kind of all the levels. B is called Rooms. It says pick up jewels, but you must move boulders to get all the jewels. So this is the type of thing that you got when you purchased a game. If you downloaded this game, as I did when I was a kid, and were playing it, you had to figure all this out on your own. That doesn't make it unplayable, but it makes it much more difficult. So, for example, if you look um, at number L, a cave L is called walls. And it says you must blast through walls to get at some of the jewels, drop a boulder on a firefly at the right time and place to do this. That's something you would have had to figure out through trial and error. If you did not have this little guide, a strategy guide that is included in the manual. So again, uh, there are caves a through P uh, they are intro, rooms, maze, butterflies, guards, firefly dens. Uh, just goes through all these different ones. One's called greed. Uh, <laughs> you have to get a lot of jewels here. Lucky there are so many. Tracks, crowd, walls, apocalypse, 
bring the butterflies and amoeba together and watch the jewels fly. <laughs> uh, it is interesting that the game and manual uses diamonds and jewels interchangeably. There are lots of places that mention diamonds. The, the box itself says diamonds, but inside the manual, it refers to them as jewels. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they are diamond-shaped and, and flashy, so they look like gems and and they look like diamonds and diamonds are gems so uh but it does uh, it's interesting that it uses that those terms are used uh interchangeably and then as the back of the box mentioned uh there are playable intermissions which happen after every four levels uh intermissions were a bit of a thing at this era uh pac-man uh i think started intermissions uh donkey kong had intermissions and so uh those were a time where players got a moment to rest their wrists so to speak uh in between you know after beating a few levels and um uh this game boulder dash also has intermissions but you can actually play the intermission. So you can earn some bonus points, but if you die in the intermission, you don't lose a man. It's just the intermission is over and then you go to the next level. The manual discusses the scoring, but it does not give you any specific scores. It simply says points are awarded for collecting diamonds, uh, and you get points for exiting uh, the level. You get one point for each second that is left on the bonus timer, and it says the uh, score value of diamonds varies depending on the cave and the difficulty level. So uh, <clears throat> it's not a, a standard score in all the levels and all the games for collecting diamonds. So at the opening of the show, I said, what does Boulder Dash have in common with Choplifter and Pitfall? And if you don't recognize those three titles together, those are three games that began life as computer, uh, home console, home video games that were turned into arcade games. Now, traditionally, games go from the arcade to home systems. But Boulder Dash, Choplifter, and Pitfall are three examples of games that started in homes and moved to the arcade. So Boulder Dash was actually listed as the very first game to do this. Uh, it predates both Choplifter and Pitfall. The first version of Boulder Dash in the arcade is 1984, and I believe Choplifter and Pitfall are both 1985. Uh, the first Boulder Dash game, uh, I don't know if this is the one from Exidy, but um, it seems like most of the Boulder Dash arcade games were those types of arcade systems that could be interchanged. Like the, in 1985, the Boulder Dash arcade game is a Deco. That is the cassette tape um, system. Uh, I think Burger Time uses the Deco system. I think there's a version of Journey that uses the Deco system. So um, it, it was the type of game that could be uh, swapped out into other systems. But on KLOV, the killer list of video games, there are three entries for Boulder Dash, 1984, 1985, and then the final one in 1990. Boulder Dash was an arcade-style game that appeared on home computers. And as a result... People loved it. But how much did they love it? Personal computer games gave Boulder Dash 100 out of 100. Your Commodore gave it 100 out of 100. Pixel Heroes gave it a 100. Uh, computer and video games gave it a 90 out of 100. 64-er, I never know, 64-er, uh, gave it a 90 your computer magazine gave it an 80. Uh, that's the lowest one until IGN's review in 2009. Now, IGN, of course, this is a review that would be 35 years, uh, 2009, 35 years after the game was originally released. And they only gave it a 70 out of 100. But this is 
IGN's one paragraph review. And this was actually a review of the version that was released on the Wii Virtual Console. Boulder Dash is one of the ugliest, oldest, most out-of-date games to hit the Virtual Console yet. But good game design never gets old, and the fun to be had in these visually underwhelming caves and mazes still feels as fresh as it did in 1984. If you're a fan of puzzlers, be encouraged that this is a solid investment of five of your digital dollars, because though it doesn't look like much, Boulder Dash rocks. So their review is basically that it's a great game. It just looks ugly. (laughs) I don't think it looks ugly. I think it looks like it did in 1984. So uh, the worst thing that IGN had to say about this game that's 35 years old is that it looks like a 35-year-old game. Um, But they end the review and say Boulder Dash rocks. Uh, and that it's a fun puzzler game, and it feels as fresh as it did in 1984. So I'm a little confused by their score, to be honest with you. It sounds like a positive score that just of a game that has a little bit dated graphics. So we have already mentioned several different ports of Boulder Dash. Boulder Dash began life on the Atari 8-bit computer systems. Uh, it was quickly ported to many other computers. Uh, it, it was available on the Commodore 64, and we talked about how it went to the arcade. It was also available on the Amstrad, CPC, the Apple II, the BBC Micro, ColecoVision, the Electron Epic Super Cassette. Vision? <laughs> I think I put too many gaps in that. Uh, GM7, or no, the FM7, Game Boy, and Television, MSX, NES, the PC88, the PC Booter, ZX Spectrum. Uh, we talked about it was released on the Wii Virtual Console. There was a release about 10 years ago on the Atari 2600, and it has been, uh, I don't know if it's been re released yet or about to be re-released on the Atari 2600, again, an updated version. Um, So it's been released on a lot of things. Uh, I like to talk about whether a game has had sequels. You might take a seat uh, because Boulder Dash was followed on the Commodore 64 and several other 8-bit computers by Boulder Dash 2. It was then followed by Boulder Dash 3, which has a space theme. It updates all the graphics. It's not a very popular version of the game. That was followed by Boulder Dash Construction Kit, a game in which you can create your own Boulder Dash levels. This has become the bane in many collectors' sides because on places like Game Base 64, they list every single level of Boulder Dash that someone has created and uploaded as a separate game. So there are literally hundreds of Boulder Dash entries of levels that people at home created and uploaded as their own games. It's really a little ridiculous. (laughs) Um, Boulder Dash construction kit. That's kind of where, well, then there's super Boulder Dash, um, which was, Basically, Boulder Dash 1 and 2 combine into a single list. And then that's kind of... uh, Nope. Then there's Rockford. Uh, Now, Rockford is based on the arcade game. So, Boulder Dash was turned into... uh, There was a Boulder Dash, and then Boulder Dash was turned into an arcade game. Then there was a Rockford arcade game. Then Rockford was ported back uh, as Rockford... Uh, It gets confusing because there's so many different Boulder Dash uh, titles. But that's kind of where the 8-bit line ends. Uh, Boulder Dash EX was for the Game Boy Advance. Boulder Dash Xmas 2002 edition was released. There's Boulder Dash Treasure Pleasure for the PC. Boulder Dash Rocks on the Nintendo DS. There's Boulder Dash XL for the Xbox Live. Boulder Dash Collection on Android. There's Boulder Dash XL 3D on the 3DS, and just on and on and on. There are Boulder Dash releases for iOS. Uh, In 2016, the 30th anniversary of Boulder Dash was released for iOS, Android, the Atari VCS, 
Steam, uh, and the Windows and Mac stores. And most recently, Boulder Dash Deluxe was released for, uh, it's on Xbox Live, it is on Steam, it's on the Windows and Mac store, and available for the Nintendo Switch. If you own something that plays games and hooks up to a screen, there's probably a version of Boulder Dash out there for you. If you'd like to own the Commodore 64 version, it won't cost you an arm and a leg. Uh, I did not see any versions currently for sale, but recently copies of Boulder Dash uh, Complete have sold for $20 to $30. A copy of Rockford is uh, just recently sold for $35. I think it's, I don't think it, is higher because, or sold for more money because it is a better game. It's sold for more money because it is in the electronic arts style that of a box that uh, the vinyl record style packaging. Uh, and there is a copy of Boulder Dash Construction Kit complete in box right now for sale for $7. So um, if you keep an eye out there, if you really want to own an original copy of Boulder Dash, it should not uh, cost you too much money. And now let's talk about my personal memories of playing Boulder Dash. All right, time travelers, seatbelt fastened, yes, the way to the Memories. My earliest memories of Boulder Dash are not from the Commodore 64 version, but from the IBM PC, specifically the IBM PC Junior. Uh, that was the first PC, I believe, that we owned. Uh, that was our third at that time. Let's see. We had the TRS-80. We sold the TRS-80, the Model 3, to get our Apple II. And while we had the Apple II, the Franklin Ace uh, 1000, my dad got the PC Junior. Um, and the graphics on the PC Junior, as you know, were quite good. 16 colors, and and uh, it had decent sound. Of course, uh, King's Quest was one of the first games that I played. But um, I don't remember specifically, but it could have been Jumpman or it could have been Boulder Dash, but one of those two games would have been the first games that I ever played on our PC Junior that used a joystick. So, of course, the IBM had this reputation of being a business computer, but uh, by having the joystick and being able to play games with the joystick, uh, even though maybe the color palettes weren't as good as other home computers at the time, well, it was... Uh, as good as our Apple, uh, but it wouldn't have been as good as the Commodore 64, which I would have got a year or two after that. Um, but, you know, playing a game on a keyboard was one thing, but being able to play with a joystick, you know, it kind of gave you this impression that the IBM could play arcade games as well. Now, I remember playing Boulder Dash on the Commodore 64. I don't remember playing... I don't think I ever played Boulder Dash 3, the space one. That was totally new to me when we did our stream uh, last week. I don't think I'd ever seen that before, but I definitely played Boulder Dash 1 and 2. And I do remember messing around with the Boulder Dash construction kit. Uh, anything that had a construction kit was a different style of game, whether that was the old uh, pinball construction kit or the being able to create your own levels in Load Runner. Uh, any of those type of games... Uh, that allowed you to create your own levels uh, just added another depth and, and gave you, well, I was going to say it would give you more of your money's worth, but if you uh, downloaded the game, <laughs> then you didn't spend any money. But that's also uh, these types of construction type games uh, without the instructions were pretty difficult to be able to navigate. Uh, they, they were kind of complicated. It wasn't just a, you know, without a mouse, it wasn't necessarily a point and click venture. So, um, but yeah, I definitely played Boulder Dash. Again, one of the problems is that I got my Commodore 64 in late 1985. And so the biggest games I was getting were from 85, 86, and there was a, a large uh, or very rapid increase in graphics and sound during that era. So it didn't take very long for Boulder Dash to seem like a little bit of an outdated game graphically. Uh, but 
there was something I, I, I did want to talk about this real quick. Uh, there was something about Boulder Dash that I always enjoyed, which was similar to Dig Dug. And that was that earlier games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong put you in a rigid maze or a rigid level and then you had to maneuver around that level. But uh, Dig Dug was the first one I remember where you made your own maze. Uh, you know, depending on where you went was how the monsters uh, chased you through the game level. And Boulder Dash builds on that because not only are you creating your own level by moving through the dirt uh, in any way that you see fit, but uh, it's also a puzzle game. And so... It's not a puzzle game where you have options uh, where you can, let's say, go left or go right. It's you can go in any direction. You can go all over the board uh, and and figure out ways to beat these levels. But there's also a timer. So you have to figure out the best way to collect all these gems, to use the boulders to your advantage, to um, set up blocks for the enemies or to drop them on enemies um, or to... Uh, um, you know, position them in ways that will help you beat these levels in a certain amount of time. So there is a lot to Boulder Dash. Uh, I say Fooey on IGN's review, uh, you know, just because it has outdated graphics doesn't mean it's still not a lot of fun to play. For graphics, I'd give Boulder Dash three out of five meatballs. Uh, there are some interesting things in here, but nothing to set the world on fire. Uh, for music, I... Mm, I don't know. Three out of five meatballs. Uh, it's got some good music in the opening, but uh, not a lot during the levels. Uh, sound effects, same. Three out of five meatballs. But when we get to the overall gameplay, I'm going to give this game five out of five meatballs. Uh, Boulder Dash is definitely a fun platform game. If you have a Commodore 64 and you haven't tried it, this is a definite must-try game for the system. And if you haven't played it in a long time, you should go back and revisit it and see just how far you can get. I think you'll find that the game is a little bit more challenging than you might remember. Thanks again for listening to Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash RobCast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. All supporters of my podcast on Patreon get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. Support tiers start at just $2 a month. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Castle is available from iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com, and through the official Amigos podcast feed, which is at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, like You Don't Know Flack, Like a Dos, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness, visit podcast.robohara.com for more information and links to these shows. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to playing those Rockford Files, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Finally, this podcast would not be possible without the support of Patreon listeners like these. For my 8-bit supporters, that includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Chris Foles, C-Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Daniel Jaleppa, Dave Velociraptor, Dave Zilly, Happy Birthday Dave, David Hearn, David Modelak, 
Eric Stryanisi, Extend to the Jam, Gabe DeGenero, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warrens, John Motocar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Matthew Perron, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Nathan Dagenhart, Olav Holt, Patrick Markey, Paul Morano, Petzl, Rad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Robbie Ray, Robot Doctor 82, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Bird, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. And for my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boatshead Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Drone Doctor, Edward Smith, Graham Vebke, Joe Sharippa, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Michael Ryan, Paul Nermix Nermanen, Rick Reynolds, John Hudson Mackay and Scott Van Drasek, Steve Sharippa, Vintage Volts, Zyke, and Mr. Wacky. 